Good morning, everyone. A huge thank you to the musicians for those awesome songs. But if you don't hear the sermon, you got it all in the songs. Those were perfectly picked out. And a great Martin Luther song, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is directly related to our passage here today. God is our refuge and strength. We, we seem to have favorite verses or passages in the Bible that tend to stay with us over time. Uh, my grandmother had a, a favorite, favorite verse. Thy words, a lamp unto my feet, led unto my path. My dad has a favorite verse, uh, Colossians, where Christ in you, the hope of glory. Maybe you have one of your favorite verses as well that's just stuck out to you and really impacted you over the years. Well, one of the verses that has really stuck with me comes out of Psalm 46, and it came during exam time when I was going through uh, university, and our God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in the time of trouble. I quoted that verse hundreds and hundreds of times as I'm walking into the exam. And so that just got, kind of got ingrained in my mind. And so, you know, over the years, as you go through the Psalms, you're like, oh, I remember that one. That one just sticks with me. And this Psalm happens to have one of the most famous Psalms of all. Be still and know that I am God. And it's quite the pathway that the psalmist gets to to get to that particular passage. So what is the psalmist trying to share with us? What is God trying to say through his word in Psalm 46? So the first passage there is, first verse is, God is our refuge and strength. And I'll have some notes up on the screen if you prefer to look at the talking points there. And it seems at face value that the psalmist is saying the first things just twice. It's like saying, you know, Mark Scheifele is a fast skater and a great shooter. Well, it's kind of like saying he's a great hockey player, right? So why does a psalmist use specific words? Well, we know that every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. So nothing is there by accident or by chance or just because someone's trying to fill pages. But there's a specific reason why the psalmist uses refuge and strength. Are they the same thing or are they something different? So God is our refuge and strength. Well, what does it mean for God to be our refuge? What do you, what do you think of when you hear the word refuge? And one of the uh, things that we see is that uh, the word refuge itself is a place of protection in the event of an emergency. So where am I running to? And uh, in the mining world, we have what are called refuge stations. So if you work underground and you see the underground world, we have refuge stations. So underground looks a little bit like this. You may have seen a picture like this before, but they're fairly wide in certain areas. And if there is a fire or if there is a gas leak or if there's some other emergency where there's a lot of dust or something, they have these different refuge stations located underground and you have a, a particular uh, pack that you carry with you that purifies the air for about 20 minutes plus or minus and you have to get to one of these refuge stations you get in there you tape up the windows you tape up the doorways and you have a phone in there and some food and water and you're supposed to be the last there for 24 or so hours or so and some of the newer ones look like this and so people literally just sit inside these refuge stations until all the disaster has passed by so what does it mean for god to be our refuge Proverbs says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Now, it may seem obvious that God is the place we run to when we have a problem. But is that the case? Can I ask you a question this morning? When you're in trouble, is that where you go? 
Or does the mind start playing tricks on you like, well, you wouldn't have been in this situation had you done this, so you got to pull your act together, and once you get it back together, then you can come and talk to God about it. Or is your heart willing to come and run to God when things have fallen apart? Maybe it's been your fault. Maybe it's not really your fault. Maybe it's totally somebody else's fault. Do we have that confidence to run to God with the, the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that don't fit together? So we run to God when we are in trouble. So what does it mean for God to be our strength? That's the same thing as, as refuge. Is refuge and strength the same thing, or what does strength really mean? 9-11, after 9-11 happened, that first Sunday, the churches in New York were packed. You may have seen those pictures of them. People, many of the pictures that you have, you couldn't imagine how many people were crowding into churches. And people thought, wow, this, this is going to be a tremendous Mark of evangelism in New York. People are now going to come back to the Lord and see great things. But what happened? Well, ironically, in the weeks that followed, it was obviously very short-lived. People just stopped coming to church, and they went back down to normal levels, kind of like the swelling of a tide, and then it comes right back to where it was. Well, what happened? What happened? Well, people were looking for assurance and refuge from God from an emergency. But when the disaster was over... They weren't looking for God to be their strength. So what's the difference? It's been said that a prayer warrior is not just someone who prays when there's a crisis, but someone who prays when there is no crisis. The default setting of their life is to pray. And the default setting of you and I as followers of Jesus is to continually be drawing our strength from God. It's not a one-time moment. So... How do we trust God to be our strength? How does that work? Our God is our refuge and strength. Well, the key is to recognize that the Christian life is a supplied life. This is the key difference, one of the key differences, between our faith in Jesus and everything else out there. In other faiths, other religions, it's always about us trying to achieve or become something. But in Christianity, true Christianity, we're given that life. It's a supplied life. It's given to you. It's not somebody who once said, it was a great expression, the Christian life becomes very, very easy once you understand that it's impossible. So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And spending time with Christ increases our reliance upon him. It's very hard to rely on somebody if you don't know them especially in the workforce or in other situations. If you don't know somebody personally and don't know them well, you won't be as inclined to trust them. But the longer you spend time with them, you have an understanding of who they are and you're willing to rely on them. So a very present help in the time of trouble. And as mentioned, this was my favorite verse during the exam time. You know, you all have that same gray look as you're walking in there and you head into the exam hoping it's going to be good. But you know, all things being equal, what's, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to you at an exam? What's, I mean, really, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? The worst thing is you didn't study properly. What you thought you were studying wasn't on the exam. What you thought you knew you understood, you didn't understand at all, and you're going to fail it. That's really the worst thing that's going to happen, right? So how is God a very present help in the real things in life? Exams are fun, but... I mean, they're great, they're important, no doubt, but there are things way more important. So how does God help us in those situations? 
God rescued Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh. I think everybody loves this story, right? There's the 10 plagues, and then uh, the children of Israel, Moses leads them out to get to the Red Sea, and we know the story, but they didn't, right? And so many times in life, it's obvious in retrospect, but it sure wasn't for them at that point. And so then come out the daggers, right? You know, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that we had to die out here in the desert, and everything goes really south. But then God does an amazing miracle. Parting of the Red Sea is an amazing story of God's refuge and strength and ever-present help in the time of trouble. Sounds great, right? That's an amazing story. But what do you say then to the Christians who were fed to the lions? Was, he, was, he, was God then not their refuge and strength? Was he then not a very present help in the time of trouble? If he, if he was for Daniel, stopping the mouths of the lions when he goes into the lion's den, then what about the Christians who were being fed to the lions in the early church? Was he there? Was he, was he not an ever-present help then? How do you put those two pieces together? And so as help that God provides, that focused more on external circumstances or is it focused more on internal circumstances? And there's a challenge that, that's growing in our, in our Western world church. We, we start to have this divide where people are, are picking certain passages of the Bible and picking the, the Red Sea miracles, picking the Daniel stories, and they don't pay too much attention to the disciples who were martyred for their faith and other ones, and they pick these different passages to create what they believe is how they think the church should be today. In other words, working from miracle to miracle to miracle, and life just gets better and better and better. Then there's the far the other side of the spectrum where the pendulum shifts and says, well, no, you know, we don't want to raise people's hopes because those were great stories, they were amazing, they happened, but they're not ones that are going to be repeated because we don't want people to get their hopes up and get them dashed, and then their state may be tougher than when it began. So where do we find ourselves? Where do we find ourselves? Well, one of the key differences is that when we look at God and how he operates in the church, absolutely, God's help is for our external circumstances. No doubt about it. Can we pray? We just read about, you know, God being our healer. Can we pray for healing? Absolutely. Do we hang our faith on a result like that? No. No, we don't. We hang our faith on Jesus. But it doesn't stop us from praying and believing for miracles. The difference here is that God's promise of being our refuge and strength and ever-present help in the time of trouble is not just external help, but internal help. God is our ever-present help not to lose faith internally. That doesn't mean that God is not there to help us externally. Absolutely. But when we look at the challenges we face, when we look at different people who've either abandoned the faith or whose faith is in, ship, is in a shipwrecked state, is that internally their faith was constantly being bombarded, constantly being bombarded, and they didn't have the time to spend in God's Word or chose not to, to grow that dependency upon Christ so that when these storms came, they were ready for it. Jude, I love the end of Jude, not to him who was able to keep you from stumbling. And the precious possession that we have is our faith in Christ. And God is absolutely able and willing to prevent us from losing our faith, losing confidence in God when our external circumstances start to disappear. It's very easy to have faith in God when things go great in your life or in other people's lives. It's a bit tougher to continue to have faith in God when life's circumstances start going south and begin to question. 
and go a different way. So this is where our God comes in to help us in that regard. The other thing I love about this verse is that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help, meaning when a situation comes up, we can pray right now. Sometimes when something happens, we think, well, you know what, boy, when I get home tonight, I'm going to really pray about this thing. And we mean that well, and I, I agree with that. But you know, right when we're in that meeting, or we're having that conversation with that person, or the phone rings and that conversation is not going the way you thought it was going to go, we can pray then. God provides help then, in that moment, so that we don't become frustrated or we don't lose sight of things and we, we get relaxed from this need to have to win in a certain situation, and all of a sudden the presence of God comes in, gives us encouragement in that particular moment. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, this describes an earthquake and a worldwide flood. Now, really, it's a metaphor for everything going wrong in somebody's life. Everything is now totally and completely collapsed. But no matter what happens, our confidence is supposed to be in God. Well, that, everybody knows that. Our confidence should be in God. But, but how do you get there? How do you get to that place where no matter what the issues are that come your way, you have this tranquil, constant, solid faith in Christ? And the answer to that is, it happens before the crisis ever even happens. It happens long beforehand. You know the old adage, it's hard to build a boat when the, when the storm's on? By continually, moment by moment, day by day, keeping our eyes on Jesus so that the Lord will be our strength. He's already taught us how to do that. So it's a question of daily being in the Word, daily practicing these things, daily loving Jesus that gives us a chance to be the strength. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Sounds like a nice verse, right? It's different from the roaring waters we heard about earlier, so now we're getting into a bit more of a positive part of the psalm. But what river is the psalmist referring to? You know, if, if I wrote something down and says, you know, isn't it amazing that, you know, here we are in Winnipeg and uh, we're right on the shore of this beautiful ocean. Well, 5,000 years from now, somebody reading that, if the Lord decides to tell you, might think, oh, I guess there must have been an ocean there at that point. But there wasn't. And here's the funny thing. In Jerusalem, there is no river in Jerusalem. There's the Jordan River, right? That's like 140K away, but there's no river. So sometimes they think, oh, this is just, you know, a nice language, you know, keep on going. But he's talking about a river, but it's not there. So what is he saying? Why, why would he bring this up? Well, to help with that, we need to look at two passages in the Bible. First is Genesis 2, verse 10, where we do hear about a river. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divides and became four rivers. Sounds good. Very second chapter of the Bible. But then, notice what happens at the very last chapter in the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So what is the psalmist doing? He's looking at something that God started in Genesis, and he's looking forward to how God's going to conclude all of this in Revelation. The psalmist is heavenly-minded. Are we? Boy, it sure is tough when life starts to spiral, either our life or somebody else's life. It's hard to remember 
that there's something amazing that's coming. What, what encourages us toward that end? God is busy writing the story of your life. God's the greatest author. He is the ultimate author. And he is writing the story of your life. Genesis 2 is right here in my Bible. And the end of Revelation is here. So here's all the stuff in the middle that you and I are living. We're kind of towards the end now, right? We're in the Revelation, getting close to the Revelation part. Maybe some think we're in it already. But most of this has already gone past. Now we're getting close to the end. From beginning all the way into eternity, God's writing your life story. Genesis to Revelation is being revealed. So we need to be encouraged in our walk with Christ to trust him as the main character in our story. It's a bit counterintuitive to think that my life story, I'm not the main character in it. But the Bible talks about that. Our life is hidden with Christ. He is our life. We're not even our own life, which is very counterintuitive. But it gives us the encouragement to recognize that he's the main character in our story. The holy habitation of the Most High. Well, today, the habitation of God is in believers. He lives inside of you and me. So at that time, he lived there. Galatians 2 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. What is the hope of God reaching the world? You know, people say we don't technically go to church. We come to meet with the church because you and I are the church, right? We're in a church building, but you and I are the church. And so when we look at how do we reach the world, how do we reach the world with the gospel, it starts with us having a passionate love for Jesus and a willingness to share. That's really the only hope the world has. That's really all, all that's left. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Well, compare with the mountains earlier that were moving, those who trust in God will not be moved. Now, the word moved is kind of a, an expression. In this way, it means to be unstable in your thinking or belief. To be moved is not obviously physically moved, but to be moved and to be pushed by every wind of doctrine, the Apostle Paul says. Something comes along, people buy into it, and they just get swept away by every wind of doctrine. Well, why does that happen? Well, it happens because people didn't make the Lord their strength. It's not so much like running a marathon doesn't come down to what you did that day. <laughs> it comes down to what you did the six months prior to it. It's just how it is. And in our walk with Jesus, every strong person in Christ, doesn't matter what their job is, what their function in the church is, every strong believer, 100%, can all be traced back to a man or a woman who spent time on their knees in private reading their Bible and surrendering to Christ. That's, everybody's like that. And that's where we have to ensure that we don't lose that. We have to ensure we don't lose that part of our life. Jerusalem was the home in the Old Testament, church in the New Testament, so how can we not be pushed and moved from God? Where our culture and our world have forces pushing us to change our position, definition of life, definition of gender, all definition of creation, all these things are being constantly pushed. So how do we keep unstained by the world? Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. That takes time, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, walking with Jesus throughout our day. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. 
This talks about the sovereignty of God, and it sounds familiar to when the disciples were at the boat and it was the shipwreck, and don't you care what's happening? This is an encouragement that no matter, the biggest thing that we see with our eyes is massive nations and massive militaries. It's the biggest thing we see, but even those things there, when they crumble, when they move, when they get pushed around, we need to remember God's still sovereign. He's still acting in this. There's nothing you've done to cancel you out of God's plan. Nothing bad decision you've made that now disqualifies you from following Christ. Nothing that your loved ones have done that where they fouled up where they can't come back and follow Christ. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I love these verses because we ask, well, why is it in capitals? Why is the L-O-R-D in capitals? While there's many names that the Lord itself in this one refers to Yahweh, we commonly refer to it as Jehovah. But there's no J sound, so it's typically Yahweh, but Jehovah is just fine. There's many names of God that reveal his character, and each of these in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. One of the great ways to share Christ with Jews because it helps them to see the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament. So I want to review just a few brief ones because it really helps to show who God is and why he has all these different names. So Jehovah is the most famous one. That was Moses at the burning bush, right? Where uh, God says, I am who I am. That's probably the most famous saying that God has with respect to his name. But that comes out in the New Testament where Jesus says, he's in a big fight with the Jews, and he says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Not a real problem for us today, but boy, at that time, that made him equal to God and as God, and that set them off in a fury. Jehovah Makadeshka, not a very common word, but it's the Lord who sanctifies you, who has set you apart, declared you holy. Moses says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. If you have time this afternoon or sometime this week, I encourage you, read through the book of Hebrews if you have time, because that all talks about the sanctifying work that Jesus has. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, made holy, not become holy on our own. We're made holy. Jehovah Tzitkanu, the Lord, our righteousness. I will cause a righteous branch, that is Jesus, to spring up. The Lord is our righteousness. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what does that mean? Uh, imagine for a moment that you had a credit card, say a MasterCard, and MasterCard forgot to put a limit on it. And uh, you got onto a spending spree, and you started racking up millions of dollars in this card before MasterCard figured out what the problem was. And they're going to come, and your money's all spent and gone, and now they're looking at how much is left, and the rest of your life, you'll never be able to pay it back. But some rich guy hears about it, and says, I'm going to buy that guy's debt. And not only that, because if he bought all your debt, you'd now be back to zero. That's not righteousness. What righteousness is, is that God buys our debt, then gives us his son's record. So the rich guy not only buys our debt from us, but then gives us all of his money. That's the big transfer. So Jehovah Tzitkinu, again, something we could never do for ourselves. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there, indicating the once departed glory of God had not returned. This is the last verse in the book of Ezekiel. It's a cool way to end a chapter. The Lord is there. The New Testament, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And probably one that we've all known, Jehovah Shalom. So Gideon is freaking out at the altar because he met the angel of the Lord, thinks he's going to die, but he calls it the Lord is peace because he's not going to die. He's seen Jesus. He's not going to die. In the New Testament, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. All these attributes of God that are fulfilled in Christ that now live inside of you and me because of our faith in Jesus that can get worked out. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord is our shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 1, of course, Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd, the one who looks after us and takes care of us. When we sung about, I am the Lord who heals you. That's fulfilled in Jesus where he says, and when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. In order that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, saying, he took our infirmities, and he carried our diseases away. And second last one, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Think about that, like when you go to a sports game, and you, you hold up, you know, placards, you hold up big banners of, of your team, team that you love so much, the Lord is my banner. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jehovah Jireh is maybe one that's the most misunderstood. Unfortunately, in, in many circles now, it's pushed as a, a means for money. Now, God does provide for us, there's no doubt, and God does choose to bless people in different ways. But this passage doesn't deal with money per se. In this passage, it talks about Abraham and Isaac, how God's going to provide the lamb to take up that we're going to use for the sacrifice. And of course, Jesus, when he's about to see uh, John the Baptist, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So all of that comes back to the passage in Psalm 46, which says, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Now that's, the song has it correct. It's actually a military term, the Lord of all the armies, big military might. And so that comes up many times in the Bible. David and Goliath is probably one of the most famous places where it comes up, where David says, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. It's a bit different in today's, in our part here in the, in the New Testament age. It does come in Revelation where Jesus at Armageddon where it says, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That war is coming, but it's not here now. And so the way in which we as Christians wage war is different than what they did in the Old Testament. It's different than what Jesus is going to be doing when Armageddon comes. We are in a very specific, unique church age and in that sense, the battle now is a spiritual battle that is largely fought through much prayer. We need to ask ourselves, how much time are we spending on our knees praying? Praying for the people around us, praying for our government. One of the greatest tools the devil has is to convince us that one person's prayers just don't matter. And that's not, it takes a lot of faith to believe that the effective ongoing prayer of a righteous man availeth much, yeah, much. So the next part, come behold the works of the Lord. This sounds really great, right? Like you're, gonna, it's gonna, it's like you're entering an art gallery and say, hey, come and see all these great pictures of what God's done, creation and miracles and everything else. But the psalmist doesn't go that direction. Instead, he says how he has brought desolations on the earth. That's kind of a downer. <laughs> something more positive that we can talk about. So why does he talk about desolations? What's, what, what possible motive could you have for, for talking about them? 
Good things can draw people to God. Creation account, miracle stories, following Christ, the, the life that, that you and I have in Christ, that, that passionate joy of just knowing Jesus. And of course, everlasting life. These are fantastic things that can really encourage people. But desolations can provide a warning to people. Noah's Ark was two things. It was, number one, a place of refuge, and we've already talked about, for those who wanted to believe God. At the exact same time, it was a place of destruction for those who did not want to believe God. That's a huge problem now in many circles because they just don't believe that God's a bad God. If he's a good God, he would not do bad things to people. He would certainly not send anybody to hell. And the reason they come to that is they say, well, I'm a nice guy, and I wouldn't send anybody to hell, and God is better than me, so clearly he must be at least as nice as I am. See how the logic works? It's false, but that's how the logic comes to it. The challenge is that God is both holy and just, and, he can't, and you have to have both. So when, when the cross is there for Christ to switch places with us in terms of our sin. That's why the ark is the perfect example of the cross. How do you escape this world? by being in the wooden object, which translates to the cross in the New Testament. Everything you see in the Old Testament is pointing to what's happening in the New Testament. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. Well, we certainly still have war now on the earth. This is not something that's being fulfilled right now. It will be fulfilled one day, but the important thing for us as believers to understand is that the only hope that the world has on both a global scale and us one-on-one -on -one scale to avoid conflict and war and everything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the issue is not so much that people have to stop doing war. It's that they have to stop wanting war. Now, nobody here is saying that, that war is... Uh, uh, is, is designed only by evil people to do evil things. There are very difficult questions that Christians throughout the ages have had to do. But if we want to see peace in this world, the gospel is the only chance we have for that. Now we come to the famous, famous, famous verse. Be still and know that I am God. This verse is directed to two groups of people. First, those who are fighting against God and those who are already trusting in God. So what is he saying to both those groups of people? First, those who are fighting against God. There's a passage where the Apostle Paul talks about his conversion where he says, where Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I, I, I never really knew what the goads were, so I slid it up on it. The goads were a wooden farm instrument used to prod an ox to keep going. And kicking against that goad would cause the ox harm. It did absolutely no good. So God is saying to Paul, what you're doing, the fighting you have against me is pointless and useless. All your striving against me is doing nothing for you. It's a waste of time and effort and energy. So why are you doing this? So fighting against God has no purpose. But maybe you're like me, you know people who are in that state right now. They're duking it up with God. They're either despondent or they're upset or disappointed when they've walked away from God. So here's, here's a word of encouragement. This is one that I take very, very hard heart to my heart is pray for discernment. What is the reason that person is rejecting or fighting against God? And so I ask God, show me what the issue is so I can pray against that. Because these people are kicking against the goads, so to speak, and it's not getting them anywhere. 
So what does it mean for those of us who have trusted Christ for salvation? Be still and know that I am God. Famous, famous, famous verse. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, the first one under be still is to take time to stop and rest before God. That doesn't mean necessarily taking a vacation, although that's fine. It doesn't mean necessarily, you know, being quiet in terms of not saying anything. But it's a very, uh, I'll, well, I'll read a Timothy Keller quote in a second here, but it's, it's an attitude of stopping our thoughts and our ideas and even our prayers towards God and simply focusing on Him. Take time to relax. To, it also means in our, in our business and hectic pace of life, which coincidentally, every generation has thought that. You read back quotes from the 1800s, people think, this is a fast-paced life. How do we buy it? It's just, it's interesting. People have always felt that. And I want to encourage us to consider making, even if it's a few minutes, but take time to be still before God. Instead of, you know, rushing in and praying or reading the Bible, all of which is good and all of which needs to continue, no doubt about it. To consider a minute, two minutes, five minutes, whatever it is, and just being still and quiet before God. Be still and know that I am God. That's a strange one, right? I mean, don't you already know that it's God? <laughs> Be still and know that I am God. Well, I already know that God is God, so what are you asking me to do? Well, a bit of that clue is found not so much as a statement of fact, but encouragement to come to continue to know God better. We have the I am, when he states there, I am God. That's all those Jehovah statements. Have you read through those? All those different Jehovah statements. I am the Lord who heals you. I am your shepherd. So how do we come to know God better? These are things that we've practiced for years. The last one is the one I want to spend a moment thinking about. Spending time with him in the Bible, in prayer, and serving with other believers, and telling others about him. Evangelism is very important to growing our faith. But the deepest one is to really ask ourselves a hard question. And that is simply this. If you want to come to know God better, is he really your greatest joy. That doesn't mean that God has necessarily done everything for you the way you wished it would have been done, either in your life or in somebody else's life. But a question we really need to ask ourselves in our own heart, is he the greatest joy that we have? That time when we're in the Word, maybe you're a morning person or an evening person, whatever, and you have that time, is that your thrill? Is walking with Jesus during the day your greatest thrill. doesn't mean you can't enjoy hobbies or work or friendships or whatever else. That, that's, that's great. That's awesome. It's a question of what really, really drives you. Because what does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's what he's getting at. We need to ask ourselves that. Close off in a moment here with a quote from Timothy Keller, one of my favorite preachers. He says, like most people, my devotional time consisted of A, Bible reading, and then B, prayer. My prayer life changed, however, when I learned of an added middle discipline, meditation, between plain Bible and full-out prayer. Meditation is prayer, full reflection on what God has just told you in His Word. It is neither study nor prayer exactly, but a combination. Learn to do meditative prayer, and you will enrich your prayer life in untold ways. And this is what he's getting at with the be still and know that I am God. It's hard, especially in our Western culture, it's hard not to have our prayer time with our minds engaged, thinking, saying, doing something. It's very hard to do. Just try it today. Just try spending even five minutes 
just in the presence of God, thinking about what he just told you. And stuff just goes all around you, right? Just try to calm down and, and just to focus on the Lord. But there's something very key that the psalmists have done throughout all of them. There's this idea of settling our minds, quieting our hearts, and taking time to do that. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And that's not always happening now. Certainly in every nation, I would expect there to be at least a pocket of Christians in every country. But it's also a forward-looking time when God will set everything right. So God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river, not here, but it's coming, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, in the same way that God is inside you. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. won't be swept away by every wind of doctrine. God will help her when, mornings dawns, when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. Big deal. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts, all those beautiful names that God has, is with us. And they're all fulfilled in Jesus. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, both the good things and the challenging things that God has how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Take time. Take time to think about God. Meditate with him. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And how does he end off? He repeats himself. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. May you be encouraged to love God to love his name, to study his name so we know more about him and be encouraged to spend time in meditation with God. That'll transform us and it will provide us courage to share Christ with other people. May God bless you. Amen.